Welcome back. Welcome back to the Comics Course. You can find us every week here dispensing information about graphical literature. I am your professor, Professor Hamby, here with my ever-suffering T.A. Rowan. Say hello, Rowan. Hello. Um, the Comics Course is available at comicscourse.org. The podcast website is comicscourse.captivate.fm. You can find me on Twitter as Prof Hamby, P-R-O-F-H-A-M-B-Y. This is Literature 209, Graphical Literature and Society and History, better known as the Comics Course, a remote education program offering of Miskatonic University. The place where you pay good money to learn about graphical literature while my TA plays mobile games. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, I have... Two things to apologize for from my last week. Um, one, I lied about unintentionally, and the other I lied about because I was just plain wrong. The unintentional one is I said that uh, we're not on Spotify because I had su done a submission thing to Spotify, and I got a code thing back from them saying, you know, that we're not going to add your podcast because we're a bunch of troglodytes who like to lick the asses of bovines. Um, but then somebody else uh, contacted me and said, uh, is it just me or does your podcast sound better on Spotify than everywhere else? What? And I was like, what? So apparently we are on Spotify. So uh, this is where... If I was smart, I would not bite the hand that's helping promote me, and I'd say I take back everything about Spotify, and they're actually good people, and I'm sure they're going to learn from their mistakes of promoting somebody like Joe Rogan. Uh, but instead, what I'm going to do is say, I still think fuck them. Because, yeah. Um, I have many faults as a human being. Oh my God, so many faults. But a hypocrite, I like to think, is not one of them. The other thing was, and this is much more minor, but I referred to a character in A Nation Under Our Feet as Gateway, and that was just plain wrong. It's Manifold is the character here, who I think is maybe Gateway's son or something like that. Oh, a big piece just fell off my chair. You still need to get that new chair. Yeah, I need a new chair. Um... But let's jump into A Nation Under Our Feet. I think you can forgive me. Gateway Manifold, very similar aesthetic. Um, and on this reread, I was reading primarily looking at some philosophical issues. So we're going to go straight into that, talking about philosophy a little bit. I said last time that we talk more about John Locke when we got to uh, this week's Black Panther. And I... I Oh, by the way, somebody else asked me if I was going to stop doing Black Panther because it's no longer Black History Month. Uh, for anyone paying even the vaguest form of attention, I was doing this long before Black History Month. Obviously, we will be going past Black History Month. Um, I didn't really make a special effort for Black History Month because I try to cover representation uh, in issues throughout the year. So Black History Month is not special in that regard. Uh, at least as far as this podcast is concerned. Uh, if, however, it is not a topic you run into very often, feel free to listen to my episodes uh, about in 
inclusion and diversity, I am creating a list for those specific on the website uh, that you can get off comicscourse.captivate.fm, as well as one specific for the Black Panther episodes. So, philosophy, John Locke. So, John Locke is this dead dude who, at least according to pictures on the internet, wore a bunch of powdered wigs. Um, I, I, you know, who knows if these things actually looked like the people. You know, if I was like a rich dude in 1700s and they're drawing my portrait, I'd be like, can, can, can you... You know, bring in the face a little bit, make the eyes a little more alert. Can you, you know, I mean, make me look like a Greek god. Actually, the shocking thing is that when you look at old portraits like that, that they're all not standing there, you know, broad-chested, nude, holding weapons, you know, a severed lion's head. I mean, that's the kind of stuff I would do if I was having my portrait drawn. I'd be like, I don't even need to be here. Find somebody better looking for a reference. I mean, that seems reasonable, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not like they had photographs. Nobody was going to know later. Mm-hmm. So anyway, John Locke was, is this dead dude. He was alive. Um, I, I would hope if not, I've got questions. And he was a philosopher. And as a philosopher, he philosophized, which meant that he helped create a body of work for people to get degrees in so they could ask people if they want fries with that. Uh, or if they would like, you know, that in Grande or Venti or whatever. But his concerns are relevant to uh, A Nation Under Our Feet, uh, specifically the Black Panther work, A Nation Under Our Feet, not Steve Hahn's uh, excellent nonfiction novel uh, book. And John Locke uh, was concerned with several things. One, he felt that everybody had certain inalienable rights. They had a right specifically in his mind to life, which I think we can all pretty much agree on that, you know, we have a right to not only our lives, but the actions necessary to protect them. We have a right to liberty, which certainly not everybody in the world agrees with, but in most of the Western world, U.S., Canada, U.K., most of Europe, uh, most of the Americas, uh, in most first and second world countries in the world, uh, would agree that liberty is a good thing and people have a right to it. Some people make efforts to curtail that among their citizenry, but that's a different issue. And they have a right to take action to protect their liberties. And then finally, they have a right to their property and to actions to protect their property. Now, this is where the philosophical question came in that the shaman, Tetu, was discussing with uh, his old mentor, Uh, who I'll refer to as uncle because I'm afraid I'm going to horribly mispronounce his uh, African origin name uh, because it involves more than one syllable, which is about all I can be trusted with, with languages I'm unfamiliar with. Wow, you're going to be trusted with one whole syllable? Well, tattoo. I can do two syllables. How's that? But, yeah, I'm not having confidence past that. (laughs) So he asked the class... And asked Tetu, uh, sort of by extension, Tetu, the shaman, used to be one of his students. He asked them, what do you do with the robber in your house? Now, you have a right to your liberty and your property and to protect these things. The robber has certain rights to his liberty as well. Uh, although he just caught, is presumably being caught committing a crime, uh, his life, uh, should he die for it, he has a right to try to act in defense of his life. He does not have a right to your property, though, under Locke's philosophy. So these are questions for people to ask. What will they do? What do they prioritize? 
and you can have some valid philosophical, you know, discussions about this. You know, I, I have severe doubts that if I found a robber in my house or my office, as the case may be, that I would care that much about confronting him because if, look, if he wants four tons of unsold 70s independent comics that I'm currently using as the palette for my bed, he's welcome to try to walk off with them. Uh, everything else here is pretty much owned by Miskatonic, so I don't care. And I would not want to put my life at risk in order to protect said palettes. Look, I can go out and get a whole bunch of 90s alternate covers for, like, based on weight, if I really want to continue using comics for the support of my mattress. So I don't care. Uh, but that becomes relevant as we talk about this, and the nation of Wakanda itself is the house. You know, when we talk about in this philosophical question of what do you do when you find the robber in your house, uh, they're talking about Wakanda. And the robber is whoever you're against. Because if there's something we don't lack in this, it is opportunities for people to be pissed at other people, right? Uh, and please ignore the hounds. They're in a mood today. So we're going to try to cover volumes two and three of A Nation Under Our Feet. Now, we're continuing to have the inking work of Carl Story, the pencils of Chris Sprouse. I don't think I mentioned them in the first one. Uh, colors from Laura Martin. I like this art team. I like this style. Uh, I think they do a great job with the African faces and skin types and making them look sub-Saharan without looking like caricatures. And making them all look unique, even the size, even the background characters. Right. Which now, I am sad that in all of uh, 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 this run, we've not seen the comedy duo with the red feather back from Don McGregor's run. And, of course, we have people who are dead now, which is sad. Um, but we'll get to that later. So as we jump into the story, uh, Manifold is teleporting T'Challa around. He's hunting for the people responsible for these crimes in Wakanda. And his advisor brings in these basically tough guys from other countries. These people that work at supporting these, these, these despots, you know, these tyrannies, um, who recommend things like, well, I mean, if your population's getting uppity with you, drag a few out and shoot them in the head in front of the others, and they'll put them back in line. And this is sort of his, you know, war council that T'Challa's uh, head of secret police has organized. And, of course, they're horrible, horrible people. <laughs> Right. And, you know, one of them stands up. And by the way, they're all old white guys, right? All old white guys. One of them stands up, says, And as for your traditions, we both know that without power, they could not sustain you long. In fact, there is only one great tradition in Wakanda, and it is the same tradition among all. The tradition of holding a nation under our feet. And this might be the first time that the actual phrase, a nation under our feet, has come up. But it means the idea of holding on to it, standing on something so it doesn't leave. Um, you asked for my counsel? Here it is. You lack the will to follow your own moors. Return to your true nature, and your country will be as peaceful as any of ours. 
Now, there's a certain irony because this is coming from someone who basically wants his suggestion is that they act as a military force and put down uh, these uprisings with absolutely brutal force. But ironically, he's actually right. And I think having him use the phrase a nation under his feet was part of Todd Nahisi Coates's symbol. And we'll talk about this. This idea of continuity and staying true to your moors comes up as a very important point, especially as we talk about Shuri and others. Um, so he's ironically right about what he actually says, even though what he means to imply by it uh, would turn T'Challa into a villain. Now, of course, somebody has managed to secretly record this meeting and broadcast it out to the rest of Wakanda. So Wakanda is now thinking that T'Challa is looking to, you know, torture his own citizens. Now, th there's a certain fascinating kind of disinformation thing here to parallel with our real world right now. As I record this, uh, Russia is invading the Ukraine. And Russia, which since 2014 at least, has staged uh, very successful political disinformation campaigns. At the very least, I know in the United States and England, uh, or I should say UK, uh, probably other countries as well. Uh, but they've not been very swift in terms of using social media to organize things for themselves, which the Ukraine is doing a phenomenal job of. And while here they're broadcasting on the Kamoyo net, the truth is you could just as easily substitute in Twitter here or Facebook or whatever social media platforms you want to use. Um, so I, I think it's kind of fascinating that in a way Ta-Nehisi Coates did anticipate um, our political use of Twitter. Uh, although maybe it wasn't so much anticipation. He was on the business end of getting a lot of harassment on Twitter himself, so he undoubtedly knows uh, that it can be a powerful tool uh, for right and wrong. Um, maybe he just thinks of it as wrong. I don't know. He got tired of the harassment and left, and I don't blame him one quantum bit. So as we go on, we run back into Shuri. Shuri is still talking with this ghost spirit in Wakanda's uh, spirit lands who is showing up as Shuri's mother, even though she's not. And she's learning the history of Wakanda. She's learning uh, things such as, you know, Wakandans say the Golden City will never fall. But in fact, the Golden City has fallen three times in its history. The city goes back like two and a half, three thousand years, something like that. And has burned to the ground before. So she's facing these things that Wakandans say how they think of themselves, such as, we have never been invaded, our city will never fall. It has fallen. They have been invaded. They kind of lie to themselves. Um, and she's learning the truth, the truth about them as a people. And this is the truth that I was talking about, that outsider said, if you lose sight of your moors and you're no longer connected to them, uh, and you're not being true to yourself as a people, you'll fail. This is what he was correct about. Um, and a lot of these have to involve adjustments of expectations. You know, they, they put all this pride that the Golden City will not fall. But as T'Challa comes to realize by the end of these two volumes, so what if the city falls? We rebuild it. We've done it before. We'll do it again. 
you know, the, the Wakandan people are the people. We survive hardships and we rebuild from them. And right now they're suffering a crisis of identity because they have been a paradise for so long that they don't know how to deal with this kind of strife. Um, you know, they got invaded by the Black Order. They got flooded by Namor. Morloon uh, did severe damage. And they need to recover from all this. And they thought they were invincible. They thought bad things couldn't happen to them. And in some ways, what he's doing is he's using Wakanda to write about America. I mean, can America survive crises that it doesn't know how to deal with? Well, let, let's look at the pandemic. We're not doing a great job there. I mean, we're not in the midst of Wakandan territory here of a nation under our feet. But let's imagine the pandemic, along with two other major crises, had all hit in 2020 and 2021. I mean, what would be the state of our country? Or any country. I mean, let's throw Canada and the UK into this, too. Um, I don't know enough about their political stuff, but America would not be a country. But all three of our countries have really struggled to handle the pandemic because people kind of broke. And a lot of people said... This can't happen to us. We're too advanced. We're too great. We're too perfect. Um, so I, ironically, I think Ta-Nehisi Coates wrote a great story about America. I'm still not convinced it's a good Wakandan story, uh, and I'm not convinced it will stick in the, in the mythology of Wakanda in Marvel Comics uh, because it violates that idea of Wakanda as a paradise. But I do think it's a very effective parallel for America. That's fair. Uh, of, of course, the problem is, every time they write stories about America set in America, uh, people flip out. I remember a few years ago, a Captain America story was written, uh, and I think Ta-Nehisi Coates has written Captain America. It might have been him. I'm not sure. But anyway, somebody was writing Captain America, and Captain America uh, stood up to a neo-Nazi and was like, we're not going to put up with that here. You know, we're not going to side with fascism. We're not going to agree with racism. We're, we're not going to persecute these brown people. I mean, they were Hispanics trying to get into America, presumably Mexicans. Um, and this was published during a time when there was a lot of discussion about Mexican immigration, uh, legal and otherwise. And uh, people flipped out. They said, oh, you're having Captain America be political. And it's kind of like, well, Captain America is inherently a political figure. He represents a political entity. And if you th have a problem with a political stance of punching Nazis and, and, and protecting, not letting people be persecuted based on their race, um, I'm okay with that political stance and I'm okay with comics taking that political stance. Right, and wars are inherently political things. Now, admittedly, the political decision to join World War II was not terribly difficult for us mm -hmm. because we got bombed, yeah. <laughs> and, and that makes it easy. And we took that kind of personally. You tend to. When you get shot at, bombed, stuff like that, 
random bit of trivia. Uh, my grandfather was almost at Pearl Harbor when it was bombed. Oh, no. Yeah, he was actually, uh, th this is how it was told to me anyway. Um, he was a radio operator on ships in the Navy, and he was supposed to transfer to one of the ships that got bombed. Uh, but his orders changed at the last minute and he was sent somewhere else. So he wasn't even in Hawaii when it happened, but he almost would have been there. Yeah, although as a radio operator, I mean, there's a good chance he wouldn't have been on the ship while it was in dock anyway. Yeah, he might have been somewhere else. So. But yeah, yeah, he liked to say that, you know, he was in the war for something like five or six years and always managed to uh, leave too early or get there too late for combat. He never saw combat once, hmm. um, but served the whole war in the Pacific as a radio operator. So as we go along, this idea of the people in the nation keeps coming back and back and back. Uh, the spirit mother who's talking to Shuri has the ghosts of all the past Wakandan chiefs. The Black Panthers appear behind her. She says, either you are a nation or you are nothing. The uh, uh, lab that T'Challa breaks into where he interrogates these young terrorists who are having bombs attached to their bodies to uh, explode in population centers in Wakanda who are young citizens of Wakanda. When T'Challa asks how this one will serve the memory of his brother, he says, I will serve my nation. And obviously here he's not speaking of the nation uh, that T'Challa is king of. Now, as all of this is happening... Tensions are rising. The Dora Milaje, the so-called Midnight uh, Angels, are continuing to establish their control of the Jabari lands. Um, the teachings of the uncle, uh, I, I call him uncle out of respect here. Uh, it, I will try his name. Changa Mir. Changa Meyer. I'm probably doing horrible with it, so I'm going to stick with uncle. Uh, in a respectful fashion here. Uh, his teachings continue to be broadcast and people are listening to them, but he is not politically active in this. And, and this will become very relevant as I talk about one of my criticisms of this story, where I think Coates' story really fails, not just as mythology, but just as a story, actually. Um, and, and there are splits going on. The... Uh, the White Wolves, the attack, the angels, they're winning. They manage to be subdued with the help of the shaman's empath who kind of puts them down. But it underlies a weakness that when really pushed, the Midnight Angels can't really handle an organized military force. I mean, this was a small group of elite troopers. If T'Challa rolls at them, with major military force, they're not going to be able to stand up. So they need help. And they need help from Tetu, the shaman, and his forces. But they have a major philosophical conflict with him. They look at him and say, you know, you want to continue our partnership, but we're hearing that your soldier, soldiers are going through their lands and enslaving women, making concubines of them. They're not going to say this in a Marvel comic for all ages, but they're obviously raping these women and kidnapping them and putting it behind some nice words like concubine. Um, and the shaman's response to this is, 
well, war's not a nice thing. These things are going to happen, right? We'll deal with it afterwards. We'll re-educate them later. And so the Dora Milaje, who are going through this to protect women who they feel have been, you know, sort of violated and broken, not sort of, they have been violated, period, um, say, that's not good enough. You can't say you're going to re-educate these people down the road. They need to stop this now. This is what we're fighting for. And you can't build a country that doesn't respect half its people. Um, and so they split, and they're unable to agree with each other. Meanwhile, uh, Shuri is still in the spirit realm, and we're going through these tales of history, and one of them, and, and several of them involve women, women in the history of Wakanda. And the spirit mother tells of this one woman that was kidnapped and kept as a slave, basically. And this old man took her and put her in a basement and they got to get along pretty well. And the old man kind of dreamed of a day when she would willingly be his wife instead of just a slave. And he could let her out of the basement to see the sun again. And the spirit mother says to Shuri, the old man was blind to his folly. A girl can be made to serve, but she can never truly be made into a slave. And Shuri responds, what do you mean, mother? The girl was captured, bound, and sold. Surely she was enslaved. And the spirit mother says, Precisely, daughter, enslaved is what the plunderer does to a righteous woman. Woman, But a slave is a righteous woman who has accepted the plunderer's law. So in other words, somebody can enslave her. They can make her uh, uh, serve in the role of a slave. But her identity, her spirit, does not become that of a slave until she accepts it. If she fights it, she is still not a slave, merely being forced to act as one. And this is mentally important. Remember, all of this, as we talk about these battles, what we're actually talking about is a battle for hearts and minds, um, which anyone who's followed you know, the disinformation issues and political and social circles in the last eight years uh, should see the importance of. We're battling for hearts and minds all the time. All the freaking time. Part of why, at this point, the Ukraine is successfully defending against Russia so well is their people are pissed and want to fight for their country. And that is a battle of the heart and mind, which the president of the Ukraine is doing a way better job at than Putin is. Because he's Putin. And Putin's a thug. I mean, he's a smart thug. But he's a thug, and thugs have limitations to how they think. There are things that thugs don't understand. Um, so, yeah. And so eventually an opportunity came, and it's implied that the woman disappeared. She saw the sun again, and she was gone. Now, while all of this is happening, um, Shuri is learning mystical powers. She's learning how to turn herself into a flight of birds. She's learning how to turn herself into living stone. She is embracing the history of Wakanda, and it is bringing with it uh, spiritual changes to her nature. And there are some asides where, you know, T'Challa talks about how he doesn't really want to be king. He's a scientist. He likes science. He wishes he was kind of left alone to work on science. 
Now, I've talked, I've mentioned on the podcast before that one of the things I did not like about the Black Panther movie was them kind of turning T'Challa into a bro. I mean, let's just be honest. The T'Challa of the movie is not the brightest knife in the knife block. No. No. That's all you got? No. There's so many different ways you can rewrite what happened to make him smarter. Right. So so many ways. In pretty much every scene. Mm -hmm. And so they made Shuri the tech genius. I wish they had left T'Challa the tech genius and followed more from this storyline of making Shuri, uh, A, a kind of mystical character, in contrast, and B, really connected to Wakanda's past. And that is what we are developing here as we go through Ta-Nehisi Coates' story, is we've always had this duality going all the way back to Don McGregor's stories and uh, jungle action about Wakanda's past versus future, and different writers have handled in different ways. Ta-Nehisi Coates is basically giving us two regents. Only one is technically King T'Challa, but one has been the Black Panther. Both ceremonially have a right to the title, and one represents Wakanda's future and technology, T'Challa, and one, Shuri, represents this incredibly rich past that they need to reconnect to. Um, and has pretty damn cool powers along the way. Right. It always feels like they have to bring down the men to bring the women up instead of just making them equal. And what they basically did was they said, here's a female character. We need a way to make her interesting. So let's take part of this male character away from him and give it to her. Mm-hmm. While Ta-Nehisi Coates is writing a way for them to stand as equals while totally different. Mm-hmm. Which I prefer that approach personally. As we keep going, uh, we see the reintroduction of the crew, Manifold, Storm, which a lot of Wakandans would not be thrilled with, as well as Luke Cage and Misty Knight. Now, anytime you get Luke Cage and Misty Knight in a story, you know there's going to be quipping, because that's what they do. They quip, and Manifold teleports them places. So, you know, for example, somebody calls Misty a thug, and... She says, I resent the term thug. So Luke Cage says, that's because you a thug. <laughs> you can just imagine Luke Cage saying that, right? Um, there's other characters I'm skipping past here. I don't care about Stain. I don't care about the Vanisher. I don't, you know, none of that's terribly interesting to me. Uh, we do see the uncle brought out to meet uh, Tetu the Shaman and his pet empath. And... We, we are treated to an internal monologue uh, from the uncle here. And I, I'll just read it to you because, I mean, he, he's clearly channeling Ta-Nehisi Coates' thoughts here about what Ta-Nehisi Coates would see as a sort of honorable thinker in this situation. So he says, I was young then, foolish enough to believe that kings too could be dreamers. I thought that the great bounty of my country called it to an even greater morality. So he, he looked around and he saw Wakanda as a paradise himself and said, we can be even more. Exiled I was. Exiled to another city and to a teaching position at a university with a really nice house. 
He was exiled from court. Let's be clear about this. Not exactly. I mean, he has like his own garden that he's been building bridges by hand over the ponds in. This isn't, you know, he wasn't exiled to freaking Siberia. So let's not overstate this, people. Uh, for decades after, I watched as my beloved country pledged itself to the sword. Could it have been any other way? I was a heretic before my own gospel. Uh, Wakanda's always been a warrior culture. I, I think there's a little bit of revisionist thinking there from Coates. Uh, I saw a world where peasants and kings were as brothers, but what new world was ever made without the sword? Well, that's true. I mean, revolutions tend to happen with violence. And he says he looked for where they'd be as brothers. He doesn't say that he wants to remove the monarchy, but it sounds a bit communistic, perhaps, in its approach. Although communists and socialists aren't mentioned here. And depending on who you ask, those words can have very different meanings. I, I'm not going to get into a discussion of communism and socialism here. But saying that a revolutionary force... Uh, in Africa, might have communist leanings is not exactly shocking. Whether or not they actually establish anything even vaguely resembling a communist state is a whole other issue. Well, that's made of yeah, yeah, um, fair. Continuing what he says, Now I am old, and I fear that some young dreamer shall resolve my contradiction and commit to that which is both terrible and plain. Now, what is that contradiction? The contradiction is wanting to build something new without violence. So he's talking about the shaman here who wants to build something new and is very happy to strap bombs onto young men and send them into marketplaces to blow up and kill people. Um, which is pretty brutal, let's be honest. And as the storyline continues to proceed... Um, Yeah, that's actually a flashback to a design she used back in the 80s. Oh, Whoops. Yep. Now, before all ends here, Storm has to bail, presumably before native Wakandans see her because they still don't like her. And then T'Challa gets Manifold to help him out with a really experimental thing at the City of the Dead so he can actually launch himself into the spirit realms and bring Shuri's spirit back to her body. And that concludes part two of A Nation Under Our Feet. And then for some reason they decided, I guess for filler for a collection, to reprint several issues of uh, Panther's Rage, the first Don McGregor storyline at the back of this A Nation Under Our Feet part two. I guess it's to help with an orientation. It is weird, especially given how different a vision of Wakanda Ta-Nehisi Coates is building than was present in the Don McGregor's. It's an odd choice, in my opinion. Yeah, it almost feels like he's trying to undermine what they built. Yeah, it's very odd. Very, very odd. So, as Volume 3 of A Nation Under Our Feet launches, same art team, great team, but the uncle returns home to work on those bridges I mentioned. Here they are now on the page. See, that's his house behind him. That's not exactly Siberia there, is it? No, that's, that's a nice house. It's not that bad in exile. Nope. 
So, I mean, what do you say about this? He's an old man. He is an ex-revolutionary. He's trying to figure out what he should think. And he doesn't see himself as important in this process. You know, he has two ex-students, one Ramona, who has been heavily injured by a bomb blast set off by the other ex-student. And one of them is associated with the monarchy, which he uh, wants to sort of step down and spread power among the people. And the other one is a leader of a group of terrorists who want to enact uh, the long-term vision of the philosopher, uh, philosopher uncle, but is willing to do it by indiscriminate murder and killing. So where should he fall in this? It's a difficult question, right? Well, this goes back and forth and back and forth, and ultimately the decision is made by T'Challa. Uh, in a sense, T'Challa goes to Changamir, Changamire, God, I'm trying. Anyway, the uncle, and says, you have to make a choice. Inaction is no real choice at all. Uh, meanwhile, Tetu's answer to what do you do when you find the robber in your house? Tetu's answer was burn down the house. And that's what he's willing to do. Burn Wakanda. Watch it all burn. T'Challa is not willing to do that. And T'Challa knows that if he steps away, if the monarchy completely fails, that's not actually good for Wakanda either. And he knows that he has to be king, even though he doesn't really want to be king. And at one point in this discussion, Baba, uh, which I think is, in, in their language, uncle, uh, uh, or I've been calling him uncle, I'll try to call him Baba, says, but we were supposed to be exceptional when he's talking to T'Challa. And T'Challa says, Wakanda is exceptional, Baba. And now more than ever, we need someone to remind us. Again, this is their fighting for the hearts and minds. He's trying to unify people. It, it's hard. And T'Challa eventually says, okay, this is now what we're going to do. Um, he sends... Shuri out to talk to the Dora Milaje, the Midnight Angels. And they don't recognize her at first and are flippant with her, to which she does not take kindly and she puts them down. And she does not like the nickname they have for T'Challa. And I'm not going to try to pronounce it either, but it translates to uh, Orphan King, the Orphaned King. And it's an insult. It's... Like, geez, I'm trying to think of an analogy in uh, uh, Western English, but it's an ugly, ugly thing. It, it, it's like calling him a bastard um, with a very literal meaning here. I mean, that's the kind of import it has. And T'Challa uh, sends Shuri with a message. Either the Midnight Angels come back into the fold and stop being a problem, or they will ignore the people which is the group that Tetu, the shaman, is leading, uh, and come and crush the Midnight Angels completely. And probably end up killing every single one of them. 
So eventually the Midnight Angels decide to sort of stand back and T'Challa faces down against uh, the people with the ghosts of the past Black Panthers behind him. Yeah. Uh, T'Challa's answer is raise the ghosts from the entire history of the Wakandan people and beat the shit out of them. But this does bring us all to a problem. And I I, I do want to mention my major problem I have with the storyline so far is that while all this big action is happening, you know, the talks with the Dora Milaje, the people attempting to attack the Golden City, all this stuff is happening... Um, their ongoing thread of we're fighting for the hearts and minds of people is to take Baba, the philosopher, who I guess is super well-known and like a celebrity at this point, and have him go out on that same Kamoyo net uh, that had been used to show the meeting of the despots earlier, and basically have him talk down people into not opposing T'Challa anymore, into putting down their arms. Um, so we, we have faced this three volume series of Ta-Nehisi Coates destroying the paradise of Wakanda to create a realistic conflict that in some ways parallels America, uh, perhaps in ways that he didn't even intention, intend to. And then we kind of have a fairy tale resolution first from old guy tells people don't be angry which I'm pretty sure was is how several Doctor Who specials have resolved, um, to the dead come out and handle it. And it, it's not that it's inappropriate, but it does seem a little weird um, that, you know, you, you kind of have a make-it-easy button, summon the ghosts of Wakanda's past to resolve our problems. And then the last issue is really centered around them meeting and talking. It feels like he didn't actually fully figure out how he wanted to write that it, it felt very deus ex machina. Yes, it did. Uh, and, and I don't like the juxtaposition of this kind of fairy tale resolution to go along with this very realistic story, which was to deconstruct and tear apart a fairy tale place. <laughs> I mean, it's like saying, okay, I'm going to write a story about the, the, the fabled cities of gold, and then I'm going to introduce conquistadors into South America, and we're going to make it very realistic how the cities of gold were destroyed. And at the end, their gods will show up and save them. Literal, you know, literal duus in the duus ex machina. Um, and it's like, why build this big realistic story to have this fairy tale ending? Mm-hmm. Now it's not the actual ending. The actual ending is in the next issue where they all gather around sitting on tree stumps. Um, and Baba's garden and basically talk about how they're going to form a new government. And essentially the, the main story goes down into a couple of resolution points one, the Dora Milaje can't just get off scot-free. Complete disregard for the law can't be rewarded. Um, two, they need to suck it up and let some of their anger go. And three, T'Challa will still be king, 
but there will be a new legislative council formed from all over Wakanda, uh, which is not that different from some representations they've had in the past. But there is one exchange in this last issue I want to point out. And uh, it is when the, one of the Dora Milaje, who is responsible for the actions of the Midnight Angels, is sitting in Baba's house with him and his wife. And she sits down and says, arrogant, imperious, haughty, the future. She's talking about T'Challa. What does he know about it anyway? Does he know what we built? No, all is he... No, all he demands is his damned throne. All he cares about is that damned throne. How many came to us for asylum? Dozens? Hundreds? Where was Harumafal then? Harumafal being the orphan king. Somebody at the table says, Anika, I think it is time to stop calling him that. And she goes, what? The orphan king? Why? It's who he is. He was raised an orphan and he treats his country like one. At this point, Baba's wife looks pain. She stands up and says, perhaps I shall excuse myself. And Anika is like, what? Have I offended her? And Baba turns to her and says, did you know she was an orphan? She's like, uh, I did not know. I shall leave immediately. And he says, and do you depart to soothe us or to soothe your own humiliation? Man, he called her out. Um, and he says, I think there's a lesson here that goes beyond manners. I'm interested in this name, Haruma Fall. I believe it may be clarifying. Where does Wakandan prejudice against orphans originate? And it originates from them being such a rich culture that it was almost unheard of for people to be orphaned. So to have orphans kind of made it seem like they were flawed as people, which is where our insult for bastard comes from. I mean... Nobody is defined by the fact that their parents were out of wedlock when they banged. Mm -hmm. But yet, we attribute their or you know something outside their control to somehow muddy their nature. Uh, not so much these days, but at one time there was more of a sense of that. Mm -hmm. And so they have to, you know, there's this fascinating thing where they have to remember that they were great, but not perfect. They have to remember their past, but let some things go. They, and this is a process of nation building. This is how nations, people work. Um, and, and he does not go into great depths in it, in part, I think, because he's primarily interested in some of the political stuff. But I, I am going to throw in just a little bit here as a teaser for when we pick back up next week and we continue with Coates. Uh, because at this point, a nation under our feet is done. But I, I like that when Ramona, when talking to T'Challa, says... You seem different, my son. For the first time in a long time, you seem free. So let's go back to that story about the woman that was enslaved. Uh, T'Challa has, in a sense, been enslaved by his duty. So we've borrowed the title of this series from a book about the rise of black political power in America, including ex-slaves rising up to claim political power as free men, and then we had a story about a young woman who was enslaved but refused to be a slave. And so the implication here is that T'Challa has, in fact, been a slave. He has taken the duties of the king and bound himself in them. He wants to be a hero. He wants to be a scientist. But he must be a king. 
But now he is moving beyond that and saying that he may serve as king, just as that woman served as a housekeeper, but he's not in his mind going to let himself be a slave anymore, even to his own country. And then he has Manifold pop him over to Storm. And he's like, hey, baby. Well, other than Steve, you know, I had this discussion on Twitter one day. If you're not Steve Rogers and you're a major Marvel character, you've committed a war crime or 30. You really have. Other than Steve Rogers, I can't think of anybody who in the real world wouldn't have been tried and executed for crimes against humanity yet in the major, including heroes. Okay, maybe not Peter Parker. Yeah. But, but I haven't kept up with all of Peter's stuff. It, Maybe even Peter Parker. Courts seem to be certain one of Opal was killed then, so he might get away with that. Well, in most of the published history of the Marvel Universe, Peter's been an adult. Mm, okay. Actually, he's only a teen for a relatively short time compared to his whole publication history. I find it funny, though, that the movies really stick with that. Well, they're largely borrowing from the Ultimates universe, mm. which doesn't exist anymore. And that Peter died even before the end of that universe. That's where Miles Morales comes from. Mm. Yeah. So anyway, next time, we'll see how Ta-Nehisi Coates writes T'Challa the Playa. Hey, baby, I had a bowl of Fruit Loops. You want to jump in? Okay, it's a bad line. But I want to see what Ta-Nehisi Coates comes up with, because Reginald Hudlin had a couple of good ones, and, uh, I mean, Christopher Priest had great ones. He didn't even say anything. He just stood there and stared at him like, I'm smoldering. Love it, baby. <laughs> So that is the end of uh, volumes two and three of A Nation Under Our Feet. Wow, you just brought your hand down on your leg and got my hand and your nails are sharp and I'm, it's a shock that I still have fingers. It, it's, it, wow. I your hand. You did. I didn't even feel it. And I'm, I'm emotionally wounded now. Emotional damage. Um, in a couple days, we'll be out with our next podcast, which is about the life and work of Rumiko Takahashi, which I'm looking forward to because it's given me an excuse to reread some Rumiko Takahashi, which is always a good thing. Okay. And, um, oh, I do have to tell you, I got a stack of papers in, but to save us both grief, I just threw them in the, uh, uh incinerator shaft. Sounds good. All right, good. So. Uh, if you're listening to this and you're actually in my class, you have an A. Congrats. Uh, if you're listening to this and you're not in my class, take an A too. Good for you. All right. We'll see you in a couple days. Read comics. Bye.